Hello, everyone. This is Gary Bean welcoming you to the LL Research Podcast in the Now, episode number 46. LL Research is a nonprofit organization dedicated to freely sharing spiritually oriented information and fostering community, and towards this end has two websites the archive website llresearch.org and the community website bringforth.org. During each episode, those of us at LL form a panel to consider questions from spiritual seekers. Our panel consists of Jim McCarty, husband to the late Carla Ruckert, scribe for The Raw Contact, and president of LL Research. Along with Austin Bridges and myself, we're working hard to keep the mission of LL Research alive and well, each of us a devoted seeker and student of the Law of One. We intend this podcast to be a platform of discussion as we consider questions from spiritual seekers. These questions often challenge us to articulate our own perspective. Now, our replies, while excellent, of course, are not final and authoritative. Instead, they are generally subjective interpretations, stemming from our own studies and life experiences. We always ask each who listens to exercise their own discernment and listen for their own resonance in determining what is true for them. If you would like to submit a question for the show, please do so. Our humble podcast relies on your questions. You may either send an email to contact at llresearch.org or go to llresearch.org slash podcast for further instructions. Again, I'm Gary Bean, and we are embarking on a new episode of LL Research's weekly podcast in the now. Uh, Jim and Austin, are you guys ready to embark as well? Yes, indeed. Let's do it. All right. We'll jump right into our first question that comes from Andrew, and uh, I'll ask this in two parts. Uh, Part one being, Dear Jim, Gary, Austin, and other seekers, I was listening to an old Art Bell show from 2001 with David Wilcock and Dr. Scott Mandelker yesterday and was struck by their discussion on the quickening. Is this analogous to what Ra calls the harvest? Show, Jim, you got any thoughts on this quickening business? Well, I'm pretty sure it is. I haven't really heard it called quickening very much. It's it's an infrequently used term. I think quickening refers to the uh, enhancing or speeding up of the vibrations of the planet and also very likely to the vibrations of each person that is seeking to uh, move into the fourth density, to the harvest, the graduation, the ascension, or the quickening. So I would say, yeah, it probably is. Uh-huh. Austin, what do you think? Um, that makes sense to me. I was assuming that they were talking about something very specific, but the only quickening I've ever heard of was from the Highlander <laughs> movies, where one immortal cuts off another immortal's head and gains all their power. I don't think that's what David Wilcock and Scott Mandelko were talking about. Um, so I don't really have a whole lot to say except what Jim said makes a lot of sense. How about you, Gary? I think presidential debates would be a lot more interesting if that were the case, if one <laughs> chopped off the other's head. Um, yeah, like Jim, I presume that uh, quickening means uh, <clears throat> increasing intensity. Well, a uh, little divergent from Jim, actually. Um I take quickening to mean a, an increasing intensity and speed or sense of things. I believe Jim used the word vibration, uh, which I think even is is a truer thing to say. But anyways, I think um, everyone can attest to a sense of quickening in that aspect, uh, in increasing intensity and speed. And so my question would be, is this so-called quickening due to the approaching fourth density or the technological slash sociological evolution of our global society or both. And that led me on a, on a 
interesting and I would say related tangent, um, not within the law of one, uh, like Austin and uh, Jim, I'm unfamiliar with quickening as uh, Dr. Manicler and David discuss it. But so um, that brought to mind Terrence McKenna. And I have a had a vague memory of I've never read him, um, just come across him in passing. And that brought to my mind a vague memory of his time wave zero theory. And in researching that, I found a related quote to McKenna by one Yanis Varoufakis, in which he says, My metallurgist father impressed upon me, when I was still a child, the effect of technological innovation on the historical process. How, for instance, the passage from the Bronze Age to the Iron Age sped up history. How the discovery of steel greatly accelerated historical time. And how silicon-based IT technologies are fast-tracking socioeconomic and historical discontinuities. Discontinuity, I believe, means a, a breaking from the past. So now on to a quote from Terence McKenna. Uh, he said... Alfred North Whitehead proposed that history grows towards what he called a, quote, nexus of completion. And these nexuses of completion themselves grow together in what he called the concrescence. A concrescence exerts a kind of attraction, which can be thought of as the temporal equivalent of gravity, except all objects in the universe are drawn towards it through time, not space. As we approach the lip of this cascade into concrescence, novelty, and completion, time seems to speed up and boundaries begin to dissolve. The more boundaries that dissolve, the closer to the concrescence we are. When we finally reach it, there will be no boundaries, only eternity, as we become all space and time, alive and dead, here and there, before and after. Because this singularity can simultaneously coexist in states that are contradictory, it is something which transcends rational apprehension. But it gives the universe meaning because all processes can be seen to be seeking and moving in an effort to approximate, connect with, and append to this transcendental object at the end of time. Um, that's interesting because uh, he he targets this upcoming concrescence whereby everything kind of converges into this singularity to coincide more or less with what the Confederation called the harvest. So um, McKenna studying the 64 hexagrams of the I Ching, which he felt um, somehow beyond my understanding, codified the nature of time's flow in the world. Um, McKenna took this data and developed software that would map these cycles of time. And here's another interesting point. And this is a quote. <clears throat> uh, so McKenna suspected that notable events in history could be identified that would help him locate the time wave's end date and attempted to find the best fit placement when matching his graph to the data field of human history. And the last harmonic of that wave had a duration of 67.29 years, according to his calculations. So uh, population growth, peak oil, and pollution statistics were some of the factors that pointed him to an early 21st century end date. And when looking for an extremely novel event in human history as a signal that the final phase had begun, McKenna picked the dropping of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima. I'm sure uh, Law of One readers can find a parallel there. This worked out to the graph reaching zero in mid-November 2012, when McKenna later discovered that the end of the 13th Bakhtun in the Maya calendar had been correlated by Western Maya scholars as December 21st, 2012, he adopted their end date instead. 
So I found that all really interesting that uh, this here's the. All right, so we had some technical complications with uh, Skype that caused us to get cut off, and I don't. We none of us know exactly where I last stopped speaking. So um, I will just wrap up that reply and say that it was interesting how um, McKenna perceived the um, increasing intensification and complexity and novelty that was happening within society, and um, saw how it was all coming to a convergence to what he called uh, a singularity and how he felt that the signal for this final phase was um, the dropping of the atomic bomb, which has some parallels in in the law of one. But anyways, if you're interested in the quickening, Andrew, um, and if if you haven't encountered McKenna, he sounds like a great place to uh, dive further into that. So you guys have any further thoughts? Uh. No, not for me. Were you thinking of the uh, beginning of the fourth density, the harvest at that time as being the relationship to Law of One? Yeah. Didn't Ra uh, target the same time period as the beginning of the fourth density energies? Right. No, 45 years before uh, in 1981, be about 1935 to 40. Um, yeah, so there's interesting corollaries there. Not saying that they're identical or equivalent, but interesting. It looks like uh, Terrence McKenna got the 2012 thing wrong, too. Yeah, I don't know what exactly he had in mind that would transpire then. <clears throat> but um, the Confederation felt that... I don't know. What right, that, yeah. that's, a, that's a separate discussion. It actually kind of ties into the next question. That's true. Uh, can you guys hear birds in my microphone? Besides the guy talking, but... Um, there's some very loud birds outside, but I don't think that they're going to interrupt the show. Okay. Well, I just got the windows open. I wasn't sure. All right. Uh, next question from Andrew says, uh, further, it's been said on your podcast many times that the harvest is now. And according to session six, question 18, the earth should be fourth density by now. Do you think we'll ever see some kind of spiritual tipping point in our lifetimes? Or will most of us have to wait until after death to really see 4D on the earth? Austin, what are your thoughts? Well, we have talked about Harvest a few times on the show, so I might be repeating myself here uh, when I say that despite incredible effort from readers to pick apart Ra's words about how exactly the transition into fourth density will work and how that relates to Harvest and how Harvest will work, and uh, especially all the discussion before 2012, there was never really a consistent interpretation about any of this. And this includes things like the question that Andrew is referencing. In that question that uh, Andrew talks about, Don asks if in 30 years the Earth will be a fourth density planet. And Ross says this is true. Uh, So some people may interpret it different when uh, they confirm Don's statement about this 30-year period. Um, Ra could have been talking about time-space specifically and not necessarily space-time. Maybe that's the point where uh, we were completely in fourth density time space um, instead of just mostly in fourth density time space. Or they could have been confirming some sort of potential for us to reach in that 30-year period that is now available to us, but we still have to uh, you know, activate that potential ourselves. Or Ra is notoriously bad with numbers, and that 30-year period may have meant something totally different to them at the time. So uh, that's a difficult question to answer, but um, uh, 
despite these differences in interpretations, I think my opinion is probably not as encouraging as some would hope. And it seems to me that there are some rather strong cycles of energy being perpetuated on our planet that might uh, deter us from some sort of mass awakening or noticeable shift in the collective consciousness, uh, the sort of shift that might be required for us to have the sort of tipping point that Andrew is talking about. And that's not to say that there aren't a lot of great things happening, and not just within the alternative spiritual community, but all over the world. Uh, within both the traditional and orthodox systems, as well as these sort of alternative thought systems. So there are a lot of great things happening. But it seems to me that for fourth density to become available to us, which is what I sort of uh, think Andrew is asking, uh, we have to work through some of this hardened thinking that we have acquired in third density. And um, doing this might be aided by the presence of the fourth density energy that Ra talks about, or the uh, increased incarnation of the so-called dual-activated entities and other factors. Uh, but me personally, I don't see fourth density being forced upon the population that isn't ready for it and doesn't bring it themselves, in a sense. And um, I do think that we'll see some positive changes in our lifetime, or in my lifetime. And uh, I feel like... Um, within the next few decades, the mass population is going to be probably not become aware of uh, the fact that there's a density system and we're entering a new density. Uh, there'll probably be no mass shift in our awareness of our consciousness. And maybe one day in the more distant future, we'll realize that we are undergoing this massive change in both our consciousness and our reality. Uh, but um, it just seems like that possibility is uh, a bit far away for it to be within our lifetimes to me. But I would love to be wrong about that, too. It would be incredible to see a mass awareness of the shift in densities and um, be able to talk about it with everybody instead of just our small little group. Indeed. Jim, what do you think? Well, I agree with everything Austin said. Um, Ross said that one of the factors that will play a large role in just exactly when the harvest for the entire population of the planet will be is the choices that our people make because we have various uh, nations and religious factions around the world that are volatile, that uh, it's hard to say which way that they're going to go. And uh, depending upon the choices that are made there, we could find ourselves with a catalyst that would cause us to want to polarize more quickly and to try to um, send love where there's um, apparently no love, and to try to establish communications where there seems to be a breakdown in communication. So I think that's a big factor. And I think that everybody that is going through the death process right now is uh, having a chance to be harvested. I think there's probably a, a walking into the light to see if you can uh, take enough of the fourth density light in order to survive there, and it's not too glaring. So I think that is going on now. And I also think that... Um, if entities aren't able to make it and they're very close, they're probably coming right back and giving it another shot. They probably have a little better point of view from the other side in the spirit world, time space, to see uh, if they've got time for another incarnation or, you know, if four or five years or 10 or 20 or whatever might be enough. Ra gave the general outline of 100 to 700 years and realizing that it started about 1935, they were about 70 years into it. So, um, um, who knows? <laughs> I doubt if we're going to see a big change in our lifetime. But like Austin, I would love to be wrong. 
How about you, Gary? <laughs> yeah, uh, I agree with both of you guys. And regarding whether we'll see anything before death, uh, Ra indicates, according to my reading in 6313, that all third density or yellow ray activated bodies will have to go through physical deaths prior to the full activation of fourth density in space time. Um, that doesn't mean that uh, enormous change can't happen within our own space-time continuum while we are alive, but um, I don't know how you choose to reconcile that one. There is uh, it was an interesting response that Quo gave to a question um, on this basic topic in February 6th of this year, and uh, I'll read Quo's reply, but preface it with a caveat or a disclaimer, rather, to take any prediction of dates with a grain of salt, regardless of the source or regardless of how good the channel is. It's just the nature of these things that uh, dates can be iffy. So, Quo said, uh, I am Quo, do-do. The time of the passing of the Earth into the fourth density cycle of experience occurred in that time period that many were speaking of for a great period of your time beforehand, that is, the year 2012. And this year, the time-space beingness of your planet became completely of fourth-density nature. However, the space-time portion of your planet has been somewhat, shall we say, confused and laggardly in the collection of entities and their ability to make what you would call the graduation, to point the needle of the compass in a solid and discreet fashion. And let me pause for a second to say that connects to what uh, um, Austin and Jim were saying in that um, fourth dense, the conversion of third density space-time into fourth density happens in proportion to what's happening on the ground here on planet Earth and our unity or lack of unity and our harmony or lack of harmony and so forth to continue with Quo's um, final paragraph. Thus, a suggestion that it would take approximately two additional incarnational periods, that incarnational period, each being somewhere between 70 and 80 of your years, before the space-time continua was able to match that of the time-space graduation into fourth density. Thus, you will see that there is some period of, shall we say, cleaning up of the mess that has been made upon your planet by the cultures that cannot seem to find a way home. Um, Austin, could you do me a favor? And there is a uh, cassette holder, a plastic cassette holder on my the adjustable desk, and there should be a, a memo stuck to that. On that memo, it has a few numbers. Yeah, like the date? Yeah, those are the past few instances I could find where we talked about Harvest, and I forgot about it. Forgot to bring it up. Oh, oh, the episode numbers? Yeah, yeah. Uh, number 38 and number 15. Okay. And, and then there's a date below those. The date. 2015-02-03. Is that the channeling you're referencing? No, February 2nd, February 3rd, 2015 was the blog talk radio show where we oh, talked okay. about it. Um, yeah, those, Andrew, if you're interested in more, those past three instances, uh, we dive into this uh, more comprehensively. So uh, anybody have any other thoughts for Andrew? Nope, not for me. Um, a quick thought about the prophecy thing you were talking about and uh, to take prophecy with a grain of salt. I think it's relevant in discussing Harvest and any discussion about Harvest because Ra gave dates and every channel uh, seems to have given dates. And um, there's lots of prophecy that gets flown around in this sort of 
uh, new age community. And um, uh, Ra talks about how this uh, is problematic, um, saying that the value of prophecy must be realized to be only that of expressing possibilities. Moreover, it must be, in our humble opinion, carefully taken into consideration that any time-space viewing, uh, which would be prediction or prophecy, uh, whether by one of your time-space, uh, a human, or by one uh, such as we, who view the time-space from a dimension, uh, shall we say, exterior to it, will have quite a quite difficult time in expressing time measurement values. Thus, prophecy given in specific terms is more interesting for the content or type of possibility predicted uh, than for the space-time nexus of its supposed occurrence. And so Ra is basically saying there that whatever time is given for whatever prophecy, always take that with a big grain of salt and um, try to focus more on the content itself. And I think uh, specifically, what does that content mean to you? How is that... um, how does it give you hope? How does it give you fear? Uh, why are you focusing on the content? What draws you to the content? And how is it helping you to learn more about yourself uh, rather than um, the date that it might happen? Just uh, some final thoughts on the idea of prophecy. Very good. Uh, thank you very much. Andrew is um, the fellow that wrote some books recently, didn't he? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Andrew. Um for anybody who's interested in fiction, uh, specifically science fiction that is based on the law of one itself, Andrew Crusoe, uh, the fellow who asked this question, has written and is writing a series of novels that is called The Epic of Aravinda. I read the first one and enjoyed it a lot, and the next two are on my reading list. I'm not sure how far he plans to go with it, but... Um, uh, look forward to it a lot, and if you're interested in anything like that, his website is uh, myth.li, which does not sound like a web address, but I promise it is. <laughs> if you just type that into your browser, you'll go to his website, um, and you can find out all about his series, The Epic of Aravinda, and um, I think he's got some great deals. You can sign up for his newsletter, get like two free ebooks or something. But it's heavily based on The Law of One. If you're familiar with The Law of One, you'll find a lot of familiar concepts in there, and it's not sort of a strict um, science-based thing. It is a fun adventure that just incorporates these uh, concepts that we're all familiar with, and he does it very well. So just a little shout-out for Andrew there. Cool. Thank you for the question, Andrew. Um, it feels like we've been on this uh, podcast a long time because of the uh, difficulties, but I presume we have time to tackle Amy's questions? Yeah, I think we've got time for those. Okay. Jim, you're good? Okay. All right. Uh, Amy has sent us a couple questions. Her first is, I wanted to ask a few questions. Does Ra give any advice on how a positive-oriented person can deal with a negatively-oriented person? How does a positive deal with the extreme hate felt towards the negative person? And doesn't it seem... Sorry, I clustered these together. And doesn't it seem rather unfair that negatives are so healthy and robust? Uh, Austin, what do you think? Um, well, there's a few questions there, so I'll do my best to get yeah. through them quickly. Uh, and I think, in general, I think it's good uh, to recognize whether you're dealing with a genuinely negative person or if you're dealing with somebody who is just sort of confused and has an inner turmoil, uh, because how you deal with those two different things could be different. 
I think a lot of people might say that somebody is negative because they have a lot of negative-seeming behaviors, but it is actually a result of possible some confusion due to some trauma or some sort of distortions that they have. And they're not actually consciously polarizing negatively. They are just an, a hurt person. And so I think the first thing to do is to determine that, whether or not they're actually negative or they're just acting negative. And then the next step is to uh, possibly set some boundaries. If it's a legitimately negative person, I feel like the most uh, safest thing you can do is to set complete boundaries because this is a person who has chosen their life philosophy to be that built around manipulating and controlling and there's no interaction you can have with that person that you can trust to be genuine and uh, if you're able to just remove them from your life completely I think that's the best thing to do because you can never uh, know what their motives are if they are just acting negative and might be simply confused, then you definitely need to set boundaries, but there might also be opportunities for you to genuinely serve them if you can um, help them process their trauma in some way without enabling their uh, negative behavior, but um, possibly help them to uh, understand themselves better and why they behave the way that they do and uh, show them a little bit of love to help them um, feel uh, what it's like to be loved and to possibly to give love. Uh, if it's a genuinely negative person, they would not be interested in that. But if it is somebody who is just confused, then uh, that might be beneficial to them. And so um, uh, I'll go ahead and stop there and see if uh, Jim has any response to the rest of Amy's questions, maybe. Um, I don't think it matters really what kind of person you got there, if it's confused or negative or positive or whatever. I think the correct response to any person is love. Don't try to give love to the situation, whatever the situation calls for. Just do your best to do that. That's what we're here for. That's the way we polarize and serve each other. Um, and how does a positive deal with extreme hate felt towards a negative person? I am assuming that positive, uh, <laughs> the hate's coming from you. Um, and I would suggest that you attempt to balance that in your meditations so that the hate is balanced with love. Um, I don't think uh, hate is a, a good feeling to have for anybody. It, it hurts the one that gives it probably more than the one that receives it. And um, unfair that negatives are so healthy and robust. Well, you know, that could be unfair depending upon what you think is valuable in your life. Uh, health and robustness is sometimes seen as uh, goals for life, but I think that... Uh, it's better to look at goals that have a metaphysical quality to them, uh, being of service to others and trying to be understanding and trying to be loving and trying to help out wherever you can and not worry about um, some segment of society being healthy and robust. Just my opinion. How about you, Gary? Um, my apologies. I didn't group these questions too well because she also says later on, would it be appropriate to assume a, quote, sickly person would be a positive orientation? And that connects very well to what she was saying about negative being healthy and robust. And um, I, I would say to both of those related questions that it's, I, it wouldn't be uh, appropriate. And if you don't want to use that word, possible really would be the word I'd use. wouldn't be possible to assume the polarity of the person based upon their health. Um, they could be sickly and negative or healthy and robust and negative. Ra, I, I think you're drawing this from what Ra said when they indicated that uh, the, the negatively oriented individual may be more healthy just because they are investing more of their intention into the care and upkeep of their body. Whereas the positive person as a tendency may... Um, 
tend to put others or some kind of service or some kind of work ahead of the care and upkeep of its own body. That doesn't preclude, however, the positive person from being healthy, um, whether due to a balance of wisdom and love whereby they do invest in their body or to pre-incarnational choice whereby they designed a healthy body in order to perform some particular service. Um, or as in Carla's case, um, she had a very frail body, frail body that was uh, part of her pre-incarnational design to uh, serve in a body that way in order that she would learn certain lessons. So it, it's, it's hard to draw polarity from one's state of health. Um, I think polarity is more reflective of one's orientation and attitude and the way they relate to others. Um, in terms of this hate, I, I really couldn't improve on um, Jim and Austin's replies, except uh, – not except, but I would add to that and quote Ra in 46.9. Ra says, control is the key to negatively polarized use of catalyst. Acceptance is the key to positively polarized use of catalyst. So um, – that catalyst is whether it's catalyst that's coming from within yourself or a catalyst that is being delivered to you by somebody else. Um, those are the two basic poles of um, you're, you're asking, how do I deal with this? Those are the two basic uh, roadmaps for how you deal with this acceptance and love. And if, like Jim said, if that extreme ha hate is coming from you, then you can start with yourself, accept and love yourself for having this hatred. I mean, that's, that's uh, understandable um, that you feel that way. Certainly every most people with an open heart have uh, negative, repulsive sorts of reactions to seeing negative acts or negative people, um, whether they are confused or consciously negative. Um, yeah, and that's it for me on that one. I've got one more question from Amy, but do you guys have any other further thoughts? Not I. Yeah, a little bit of a clarification. Jim talked about um, not seeing a difference in how we treat an individual who seems negative, whether they're actually negative, negative or confused. Um, and I talked about setting boundaries uh, based on how you feel that that person is. Uh, and I agree with Jim that loving them uh, completely, or attempting to love them at least, uh, is what you would do in either case. And uh, I, just, I don't see um, setting boundaries or treating people uh, in different ways based on how you think they would uh, react or um, possibly use or manipulate you is uh, precluding that love. Uh, for instance, when Ra talked about um, the groups, the Ra contact groups, attempt to serve the negative being that was greeting them and said that they found it slightly humorous and they gave advice that was something along the lines of if you served this entity in the way that it wished you to serve it, then you would no longer be able to offer your service to others because it essentially wanted to extinguish this. And so uh, that's sort of what I mean by trying to gauge how an individual uh, might be truly negative or maybe just confused. Because if an entity is just confused, then it won't uh, necessarily for sure be trying to manipulate you or extinguish your light or control you. Uh, their behavior just might seem to indicate that. But if they have seriously made that choice to be negative, then um, that would affect at least how I would interact with an individual. Uh, I would still find it in myself to uh, find love for that person, but I don't think that boundaries preclude acceptance and love. 
Just some clarification. And if I can add a thought real quick to that, I think what you're describing is an act of discernment um, because somebody who's lashing out, say, or attempting to hurt other people um, who's, you know, positive at heart, it's hard to make those assessments, but say somebody is confused or wounded or hurt, and they may be available to be reached, whereas a negative entity does not want to be reached. That negative entity right. is consciously intending to control, enslave, subjugate, dominate you. So in both cases, love is the fundamental reaction, of course, but in terms of um, your, your action, what particular strategy or your particular response, then discernment does come into play, I think. Right. Yeah, that's basically what I mean. Uh, the the final thing I had from Amy was just a, more of a statement, and I I had a response to her, so I'll read her statement, and she says, "I'm a positive oriented person, and I find it so unacceptable for a person to be of a negative orientation. Consuming extreme interest in oneself is just so repulsive to me." Um, Jim or Austin, do you guys have any thoughts to that? Um, there's no question. She she just gives her opinion. <laughs> <laughs> um. Just some commentary, I suppose, on the statement uh, that I th what I see in Amy's statements and her questions is this idea of her own shadow um, based on the Carl Jung archetype. Uh, Carl Jung said that our shadow is the person that we would prefer not to be. And so Amy says she's a positive-oriented person, and she looks at negative orientation with this sort of disdain. And it's clear that she does not want to be that negative orientation. She uh, finds the extreme interest in oneself uh, repulsive. And a lot of the work that I think the, the Confederation um, helps us to achieve and that e. Carl Jung talked about in his own work with the shadow is to... Um, use that shadow as a, a tool to find greater love within your reality. What you find so repulsive, what you find so uh, negative about somebody else, you are rejecting that because uh, within yourself, you contain the entire spectrum of human behavior and you might choose to only express some of that, but you contain everything and you are essentially rejecting a part of yourself when you uh, reject this thing that you find so repulsive. And so it's, uh, if Amy would like to look further into this and maybe find a way to find love for uh, those types of people that she finds repulsive, I would suggest looking into uh, Carl Jung's shadow work and um, even doing a search in the Ella Research Archives for the word shadow because Kuo actually talks about it in these same terms as well. Um, that uh, we are essentially rejecting a part of ourselves since we are all one thing. We contain the entire universe within us. When we find somebody else repulsive, we are actually finding an aspect of ourselves repulsive. And then you can work with that aspect of yourself easier than you can work with an other person. Uh, so that's what I would have in response to that comment. I, I think it's really salient to uh, invoke the concept of the, the shadow self. And my reply is just going to be a riff on the same theme that, um, uh, that Austin focused on. And um, that's that uh, you may indeed be a very positive person and I may be a positive person and, and many others may be positive people, but that's not the end of our identity or who we really are. Um, we are more than just a positive person 
person or a negative person. Um, we're more than just third density entities. We are, and this is Ra's message, we are the creator. And the creator, as Austin was saying, includes all things. There's nothing that is not the creator. So you are fundamentally you, uh, the negative person too. Your your larger identity includes that. I mean, there is a space of your identity where you are very much a positive person and, and you must enhance and accentuate that and intensify that. And that positivity is going to carry us um, through multiple densities of evolution, but that is not the end of our identity. And, and that's the viewpoint that Ra is attempting to share, that you are not just this positive person. Um, in uh, 1.5, Ra is speaking of unity, and they talk about how the priest in, I believe it was Egypt, um, distorted Ra's message uh, by, quote, robbing it of the, shall we say, compassion with which unity is informed by its very nature. Since it, unity, contains all, it cannot abhor any. So unity itself, which is what you really are, it's not an abstract concept, um, unity itself cannot abhor the negative path, no matter how uh, evil or wicked uh, their deeds, because unity contains all, and you, Amy, are that unity. Um, but that concludes my thoughts. Do you guys have any further well, if there is part of herself that she really doesn't like and is taking it out on the negative folk, folks, I think maybe it would be a good idea for her to love both that negative part of herself and the negative entities. Indeed. Mm -hmm. I think that's the really the full definition of love is to find love for that interior part of yourself that you are seeing within the others. Yeah, Ra says that uh, each is a mirror. So that negative entity is offering you a mirror. Yeah, that wraps up our show today. Jim, would you like to say anything to the listeners? Well, thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks for your time. Thanks for your questions. Thanks for your love. So when you go out and see everybody else on the streets, whether you're seeing somebody you like or not, try to give them a smile and see if they might smile back and send a little love everybody's way. We can all use it. See you all in two weeks. You've been listening to LL Research's weekly podcast, In the Now. If you've enjoyed the show, please visit our website, llresearch.org and bringforth.org. Thanks so much for listening, and a special thank you to those who submitted questions. If you'd like to send us a question for us before the next show, please read the instructions on our page at llresearch.org slash podcast. New episodes are published to the archive website every other Wednesday at 1 p.m., Eastern. Have a wonderful week and we'll talk with you then.